BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. It's Monday, July 16th, 2018, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook. And you can also get an ad-free version of the show by supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. And of course, you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. So, Kishore, uh, we're just uh, exiting the World Cup. Uh, So some people are thinking about how, you know, how athletes are uh, performing at such high levels. Uh, We're also in the midst of baseball season, um, about to enter the All-Star break. And so I've been thinking about what it takes to be such a, a great athlete. And so we usually think about athletes such as baseball players or soccer players as having really good coordination between their senses and their muscles, right? Yeah, you have to have hand-eye coordination to hit a ball and you have to be super strong to hit it far and you have to be fast to, you know, to run the bases, all of those things. So so you think if you have poor eyesight, you would by definition never be a great baseball player. Yeah, I would think so. <laughs> okay, apparently not true. <laughs> <laughs> That's something I learned uh, by reading The Performance Cortex, which is, which is Zach Schonbrunn's book. Uh, it's how neuroscience is redefining athletic genius. And in one of the studies that he describes, which we'll talk about in the interview, is essentially where they took a bunch of baseball players, impoverished their vision, and their batting averages did not change. What? Yeah, that makes no sense. (laughs) Well, it's all about the brain. Uh, So whereas sports teams, you know, have masseuses and uh, uh, physical therapists and even psychologists, the question is now should they also be hiring neuroscientists? Because we can finally look at brain signatures and decide things like which of these athletes is going to, you know, be able to hit a ball uh, better than someone else on the basis of how their brains respond to the stimuli rather than, you know, how their muscles do. So let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Zach Schonbrunn. Support for today's show comes from Google Play. Did you know that you can now download and listen to audiobooks on Google Play? That's right. With hands-free listening using Google Assistant or Chromecast, you can enjoy thousands of titles a la carte no subscription necessary. There's even multi-device integration across the Google ecosystem. As a podcast host and avid listener, I love to listen to audiobooks wherever I am, especially when I'm out on long walks or hikes on my own. And Google Play makes it super easy. And for a limited time, you get $10 off your first audiobook by visiting g.co slash play slash minds. That's g.co slash play 
slash minds. Find your story with audiobooks on Google Play. Today's episode is brought to you by Looker. Use Looker to take your analytics to the next level. Looker is a modern analytics platform bringing data-driven decision-making to every level of business. From innovative startups to enterprise-grade businesses, thousands of companies are using Looker in every department to access, analyze, and act on their data. Looker gives you the right tools for the job. Their modern, best-of-breed data workflows free up time for higher-value work and have solutions for every department, from customer support and marketing to product and data science. Looker is built with your security in mind and ensures that your data is safe, secure, and in your control. Companies like Deliveroo, Trivago, TransferWise, Yahoo, and more rely on Looker for their business intelligence needs. Get more from your data with greater efficiency by using Looker. Head to looker.com today to learn more and request a demo. That's looker.com to get started today. Looker. Secure. Shareable. Powerful. Zach Schoenberg, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. So one of the things that we think about when we see an athlete like a baseball player hitting a ball is that they have really good reflexes. I mean, they must and and really good eyesight to be able to hit, you know, such a fast moving target. But your book is starting to question that very premise. Yeah. In fact, my my book, I think there's a little bit more than question. It basically refutes um, both those things as being necessary for uh for, for good hitting ability. And in fact, there's a, there's a baseball player currently playing um, for the St. Louis Cardinals. His name is Tommy Pham. He batted 309 last year despite having a degenerative eye disorder that, uh, that blurred his, his vision. And he would get back to the dugout and his teammates would say, uh, you know, that pitch you hit, what was it? And he would say, oh, it was a slider. And they were like, ah, I don't think so. We could see from the dugout that that was pretty clearly a fastball or whatever. And so, you know, so he's a great example of of, uh, of a ball player who's doing pretty well without having a great, uh, great working visual system. And then, you know, the idea of, of reflexes uh, being uh, necessary for for athleticism and, and so on. It's, yeah, it's, it's actually not really the case. Most of us generally have the same amount of reaction time and uh, and that's not really something that is easy to uh, or or uh, uh, it's capable of improving um, very much. And so, actually, what is uh, is separating these these great hitters is uh, other components of their brain, and specifically, it has to do with um, their predictive ability and uh, and what they're picking up from uh, pitchers uh, before the release point uh, of the ball out of their hand. And these are these are cues and things and uh, perceptual. Abilities that they are able to pick up on that uh, normal lay people just aren't able to do. I mean, this is what so excites me about the work that you write about, uh, because, uh, you know, from the neuroscience perspective, you know, we always think about athleticism as being in the brain, not in the muscles. Uh, and yet, you know, the, the biggest argument for sort of the existence of native talent or, you know, differences in ability usually comes down to people saying, well, you know, you just, you know, you people, some people just have better reflexes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's right. And, and this is why I, I, I went forward in, in writing the book is that, um, you know, there, there is a misconception about athleticism and, and I think, you know, kind of expertise uh, in, in general, but mostly with the, with these athletes is we tend to think of them as being physical freaks 
and uh, having you know gifted genetic gift, gifted they're, they're gifted genetically, and that's what enables them to excel. And I think you know physical traits and physical features are attributes to expertise. Um, and certainly for some sports in, in some domains, yeah, I mean there are things that you need genetically that not everybody is going to have in order to be in the NBA. Um, you're probably going to need to be of a certain height and and of a certain ability to jump high. And LeBron James, who's the best player in the NBA, has got many of those things. He's 6'8", he's 270 pounds of sheer muscle, and he can run really fast and jump really high. And all those things uh, would augur well to his ability to play basketball at a really high level. But I would also argue that there's so many things that LeBron James does on the court that really don't have anything to do with his ability to jump high or run really fast or really, really quick with his movements. For instance, when he's making a behind-the-back pass or even just a no-look pass to an open teammate, he does this on on uh, you know often we we see it in the you know in games he does this all the time he makes it look so easy but yet for the brain and what he's able to actually achieve that's very very complicated and uh, and in fact neuroscientists that I spoke to for the book trying to explain explain how he's able to do it they just kind of shake their heads and and they're like we you know we we almost don't really have an idea yet of how that's able to um, to be achieved and so you know those are the things that LeBron James someone like LeBron James does on the basketball court over and over and over again that really have nothing to do with his physical nature, but have much more to do with his cognitive nature. And, you know, here in uh, San Francisco, we don't talk a lot about LeBron James. We talk about <laughs> Steph Curry. <laughs> well, so, I do have a chapter called uh, Why Steph Curry, Steph Curry is a Genius. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, he, you know, he, yeah. And, he, and and he's the great example of the opposite side of that, kind of the opposite side of the spectrum from, from LeBron. Because Steph Curry doesn't have necessarily those physical traits that would augur nicely for, for success in the NBA. In fact, when he was coming out of college, he was uh, considered too unathletic and too too slow-footed and 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 was not was not yeah, was basically non-athletic enough to excel in the NBA and that's why he draft he dropped down some draft boards and of course the Knicks here the Knicks fans lament uh, their their opportunity to draft him here in New York and and uh, he didn't he didn't get to them and so and the reason is because I think scouts and these teams at the time were too focused on his physical attributes they weren't um, taking into account like I said all those other things on the court that someone that, that someone like a with a, of a of a great uh, basketball skill like Steph Curry is able to do that uh, kind of dis, that um, you know makes makes those physical attributes uh, not not make a big a huge difference um, for him and so um, and so his his cognitive uh, abilities his his ability to um, not only strategize and and predict and process what's going on around him but also you know what his teammates are doing what his opponents are doing and and just the motor output for his his uh, his shots and his shot selection, all these things are really extraordinary, and and I think they they make the case for why you know someone like Steph Curry flies in the face of how we traditionally scout and evaluate prospects um, for for those reasons that I said earlier that he was he was overlooked because of his physical um, his physical size, and, and clearly he's shown that he's a lot more than that. So for a long time, you know, cognitive scientists studying expertise were really touting this idea that, you know, there there is how, how we develop these kinds of skills depends on experience, not just simply genetics. And, you know, so Malcolm Gladwell popularized this in the 10,000 hours rule uh, book. And yet that the promise of the 10,000 hours 
um, sort of framework, you know, has not really panned out for a lot of people. Uh, it's been, you know, a long time now since uh, the pr- publication of that book and those and the popularization of those ideas. And yet still we have this notion that, you know, even if I put in 10,000 practice hours, that doesn't mean I'm going to become Steph Curry. Now it seems like the neuroscience is, is, is showing us why that's the case. And so I wanted to start sort of talking about that, about this idea that you know, practice is not created equal, and that um, that that the more we understand about the brain changes that occur through experience, um, the better able we will be to craft the kind of practice conditions that lead to that, you know, to to that expertise. Yeah, I mean, you you, you say in there that that's right. The last thing you mentioned, the practice conditions, is really the key there because, you know, I think what maybe got missed in the Gladwell interpretation of Anders Ericsson's uh, 10,000 hours rule, so to speak, is the idea of deliberate practice that Anders Ericsson specified that the practice that you put into something has to be deliberate. It has to have, um, has to have costs. It has to have, um, you, you know, evaluating after each session, how you did and, and, uh, and trying to improve and kind of tailoring your training, um, for that purpose that you're, whatever you're trying to get better at. It's not just, you know, me standing at a driving range, taking the same hacks over and over again for 10,000 hours is going to lead me into the PGA tour. It's much more, um, nuanced, than that. And, and you're right. I mean, the reason that is, is because of how nuanced the brain has to be in order to respond to that practice, I guess, is, is kind of the, the easiest way to say it. I mean, it doesn't take 10,000 hours to bolster your muscles, right? I mean, the, you know, that's not what it's, that's not what the practice is for. The practice is um, for the transformation and the plasticity of your brain to adapt and to prepare itself for whatever tasks it's, it is, uh, or, or challenges it's, it's about to, to face. And that, that takes time and it takes energy and effort that is more than just, you know, developing habits. And, um, and I, and I do have a, piece in my book about the difference between developing a skill and developing a habit. And we've, we've tended to approach our training and our coaching with this mindset that practicing leads to automatization and that's a good thing. And that leads to expertise, but it's, it's really not quite the case. There's, there's automatization is, uh, is a, is kind of a, is a function of getting into a habitual mode and habitual state. And that's not always the same thing as, uh, as skill. And so if you think of it like driving a car, I can drive down the street without and not remember where I was or how I got there because I'm so habitual at that, that act of driving. But that's not the same thing as, as being a Formula One driver or someone, you know, who's a professional racer. They're not doing that, even though, you know, they're doing the same, they're doing the same thing as me in terms of driving a car, so if that makes sense. So you know, I think it's this, it's a different approach to, it's not just practice for the sake of practice. You really have to, um, you really have to take it with a, you have to have to take a deliberate approach to practice in order to get that uh, desired expertise that you're talking about. Yeah. And so we actually had um, Anders on the show uh, when his book Peak first came out uh, to sort of talk about this difference, because it's something that's always fascinated me, the difference between sort of purposeful versus deliberate practice. And, you know, one of the one of the key features there uh, is the type of feedback that you're getting and how you are able to respond to it. Um, and I and I love your your um, sort of 
you know, pointing out about automization, because a lot of us think that that's, as you mentioned, part of the skill. And in fact, we call it muscle memory because it doesn't feel cognitive. It doesn't feel conscious, um, which it isn't. Uh, and yet there's this component to it that, you know, that, that we kind of have to build up through practice and, and in a kind of an efficient way. So I kind of want to talk about that a little bit more, this this um, idea that a lot of the skill learning that we are achieving is not available to us consciously, but that doesn't make it the same as sort of just a habit where you're you're just responding to, you know, in the same way to different different conditions. Yeah, I mean, y- y- you know, Someone who is an expert in someone like, let's say, Serena Williams, um, who is obviously, you know, an, ex- an expert in, in tennis and the best there there's ever been in, in, in tennis. And so, you know, the practice that she has put in um, to all those times, taking all those strokes and um, and, pre- you know, and, and, and working on her forehand and backhand, it, and it effectively has has built up a repertoire or kind of a baseline for for all the things that she knows that she can do so kind of without thinking about it on the court. And so it's so there are very few scenarios that do that arise. It would seem uh, on the court that she has to actively think about in order to respond to. But that's not to say that she's not actively thinking and responding to those scenarios that might arise, if, if, you, if, if that makes sense. She, she has put in the time and the practice into establishing whether it is the habits or or the skill um, that that uh, she's trying to build, she's put in that time um, in order to build that repertoire, and and so and she has that kind of in her back pocket. But of course, when she is facing a, a top level opponent in a match with all this pressure and stress, it's the you know it's the Wimbledon final. There's crowds and television and and uh, and all these things you know those are scenarios that might otherwise throw somebody off their game but she is because she has she can rely on the repertoire that she's already put forward and not have to think so much about her backhand and forehand she can be strategizing and uh, and kind of her her brain effectively is liberated to um, to to employ uh, additional skill and and, and respond to um, respond to whatever her her opponent is giving her. I think does that make sense? That's yeah, kind of- yeah. In fact, it tracks very closely to what we see in in expert musicians. So, um, you know, if you're first picking up the cello, for example, people say, "Oh, music is so great because it activates you know your whole brain or so much of your brain." And it is true when we see brain activations of amateur cellists. Like, there's a lot of areas that are active, but when you look at professional cellists, those areas become more fine tuned, uh, and there's this kind of you know pruning of unnecessary cognitive resources uh, and instead sort of these these higher amplitude signals from specific circuits. Um, So I imagine that's probably happening to a person like Serena Williams, where, you know, which which allows her then to go into the situation in Wimbledon um, and make use of that extra cognitive uh, sort of bank that she has uh, to, to, you know, to pivot, right? Like, um, right. Yeah. I I mean, you know, I I think what it you know, kind of the big picture here that I, that I was that I've been trying to make with the book and and specifically about the the skill and habit discussion and and so on is that you know we 
there tends to be a misconception and, and a kind of an unfair misconception about athletes as just being reactionary machines, like automatons that have put in so much time and practice into whatever they're doing that they can effectively go on the court and sleepwalk through something without really having to think and respond and strategize. And that really couldn't be further from the truth. And, um, and so, you know, they, they have put in the time and the practice to bolster that repertoire and to build up those, that bank of, of shots that they can always fall back on. But in order to win Wimbledon, you need a lot of other things. There's a lot of other uh, circumstances and scenarios that are going to arise that you have to be actively responding to and strategizing for in the moment. And that's what the, that's what the exceptional athletes are able to do. Yeah, I loved your quote from neuroscientist John Krakauer, uh, you know, that, you know, we, we don't think about foreign language speakers as having just a dexterous tongue. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, that that really, in fact, that that when he told me that, that really crystallized everything for me. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that, you know, the quote was something about, you know, why, why a player who's skilled because of his physical attributes is like saying that um, I'm very good at French because I've got a very dexterous tongue. It's it's the wrong place to assign the credit. And so, yeah, again, I mean, it, it gets back to this idea. These guys, these, these athletes in particular, they're not just physical specimens and, and they're not, their, their excellence is not simply owed to their, their physical traits and all that practice that's gone into things, making everything automatic. There's a lot more that goes into it. And, um, and what's responsible for their expertise in that, in that regard is their brain. Yeah. So, so one of the um, ways in which you've made this super clear, I think, to anybody who has tried uh, is by focusing to some extent on hitting a professional baseball pitch. Uh, so anyone who has tried to hit uh, a pitch from a professional baseball player knows that it it seems impossible. <laughs> I mean, it's like, you know, there, there's just no way that this is this is possible. So it can't just be, oh, I just have to be faster at, you know, swinging the bat or, you know, it's like you have to make the decision before the ball has left the hand of the pitcher uh, in order to do this. So let's talk a little bit about that particular skill um, and, and what it takes. Uh, and then maybe we can even get to why my favorite baseball player, Mariano Rivera, uh, was such a legend. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> that's great. Um, yeah. And, it, and there's definitely a good reason for that that ties into all these things. But yeah, I mean, for a 95 mile an hour pitch um, to, uh, to reach home plate, uh, is 60 feet, six inches away. It takes about 400 milliseconds, but just the time that, uh, the, the constraints that our own physical, that our own bodies have, the physical constraints that conspire against a hitter in terms of how he, how he's able to read that pitch, um, process that information, then produce a motor output that effectively, sh- uh, cuts that time right in half. So now instead of four tenths of a second, you're talking about two tenths of a second to decide whether or not the swing or not swing at this incoming pitch. So that's two tenths of a second is half the time it takes to blink your eye. So it's very, it's very, very quick. And then, you know, we're not even considering the other factors that go into it, such as a, pl- a pitcher using uh, deception or the fact that, you know, certain pitchers have longer strides because they're taller. Um, and then, you know, a lot of pitchers these days are throwing harder than 95 miles an hour. So that cuts down in your time even more. And so, so yeah, it, 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 um, it really is, is remarkable uh, to think that a hitter is able to time 
and uh, and and decide to swing and and uh, and hit a hit a pitch at all. Uh, never mind the what's considered a good batting average, which is uh, three hundred. And so the the way that they're they're effectively able to do this is through prediction, as I, as I mentioned earlier, they are uh, pr- picking up on cues. Uh, that uh, the pitcher either uh, very subtly uh, or subliminally, subliminally is is giving away um, effectively before the the pitch uh, release is released out of the hand or just after the pitch is released out of the hand. And so these hitters over time, because of how much practice and time they've put into it, they 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 know how to uh, read and and respond um, to those to those cues. And what's interesting is just how fragile um, that. Uh, balance is. There is a very famous example of about a decade ago where they took, it was an all-star sh- uh, festival of some sort, and they had several of Major League Baseball's biggest sluggers, Barry Bonds, Albert Pujols, and they had them try and hit a Olympic softball pitcher, Jenny Finch, uh, and her fastball as, as she was throwing underhanded. And now Jenny Finch threw very hard, but she didn't, she didn't throw harder than any major league uh, pitcher. You know, it wasn't harder than any of these guys were used to facing on a daily basis. But when they stood up there to try and hit her pitch, not only could they not make contact, but some of them couldn't even get the bat off their shoulder in time to to decide whether to swing or not swing. Like they were they were just completely flummoxed um, by these uh, by these pitches. And the reason simply it wasn't had nothing to do with the speed. It just had to do with the arm angle. And they were not used to seeing the ball coming out from an underhanded angle and uh, and that was it really it ruined it completely ruined and disturbed their entire prediction mechanism and um and they weren't able to hit so uh kind of an interesting interesting example there this is so fascinating to me uh, as a you know from the neuroscience perspective because often we talk about what's called libe's delay which is you know this this um finding that you know when you think about doing an action and then you actually do that action. There's about a 300 millisecond delay in terms of neural activity. Uh, and sometimes it looks as if your brain has made the decision before you are consciously aware of it. Um, and, and so that that's what's fascinating about the delay is that we think like, okay, you know, it's my brain made me do it uh, kind of thing. And yeah, kind it, of that it, unconscious yeah. urge. Yeah. Yeah. And it kind of underlies this whole uh, argument for, you know, this idea that we don't have free will and, and, right. and so on, which right. is you know, <laughs> a totally other question. And yet here we are in a situation where um, that delay is just too long. Uh, so, so you know, f- to, to hit this pitch, I mean, it, you know, talking about 300 milliseconds as opposed to 200 milliseconds, which is, you know, what you're saying is, is you need to you need to have made that decision. So do you do you think that uh, in a lot of these hitters, the decision to um, swing happens unconsciously? You know, it's I don't know. I mean, I think they I think to some degree, yes. I mean, I think for, um, you know, you often hear you don't want to 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 be thinking too much as as you go into the you know, as you, as you head into the bat, into, into the, into the bat. And, and so, and I think that's a responsible for hitters when they struggle or when they, you know, you often hear the term choke in sports. And that often um, is the case when certain brain areas are activating that effectively shouldn't be activating because you're overthinking things or your emotions get involved or, you know, you can't handle the stress of a situation. And so, whereas a, a, a normal uh, skill that you, that you've done a thousand times just requires, you know, simply your, 
motor system to to unfold properly. Now you're getting into some, you know, sentimental regions of the brain and and other cognitive, really co- uh, cognitive um, areas of the brain, and they effectively kind of crowd or or uh, um, you know they they inhibit your your motor your proper motor functioning. That's you know that's what happens uh, I guess when you when you're choking. Um, and so I think probably there's there's if that if that does happen to a hitter if they are consciously thinking too too much about about uh, trying to hit, hit this pitch um then uh then yeah that probably would would be a uh, a deterrent um to them I, you know but i do think they are making a decision um it happens to be a very quick decision and fortunately it's a pretty binary decision swing or don't swing um and and so that decision unfolds in that short in that small little window that they have uh the 200 milliseconds but they are still um their brain is is still responding to what it's seeing and they are triggering a motor uh output and so i think um you know they, they are actively deciding on something there so it might be kind of somewhere in between so let's let before we leave this particular topic let's talk about mariana rivera because I can't help myself. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so yeah, what made his one pitch uh, so hard to hit? Right. Well, I mean, I think you know his his the his pitch was so hard to hit because of its late late movement, and so what it did is it effectively uh, it, it was so deceptive um, to these hitters because they it came after that window of deciding to swing or not swing had already transpired effectively. You know they. The um, the the pitch, uh, which was his his cutter, had very late late action, and so a hitter is seeing this pitch coming in straight as if it's a fastball, and they're reading it like a fastball, and they've seen thousands upon thousands of other fastballs, and they're picking up on those cues that tells them that it's going to be a fastball, or at least tells them it's going to be straight, and and so and for a lot of pitches that approach that. That's um, that decision would be correct, um, but the late movement of his pitch just en- just enough um, came too late for them for their visual system to track the ball, um, and that's that's a another big misconception of, of sports. The idea that we can see the ball hit hit the bat is is physically impossible. Our, our visual uh, system doesn't work that that quickly. And so we're, we're unable to see the ball uh, actually hit the bat. Um, so there is a certain point where we lose that where we lose track of the ball from from our vision. And so his cutter, I guess, uh, took advantage of that and was able to move uh, after um, we our vision was after our, our window for deciding had already passed and also after our vision had already the, the visual uh, ability to track the ball had already passed. So it was really the perfect pitch. And that's why uh, he was he was so successful. Yeah. And if there's any doubt that, you know, vision really has has not that much to do with being able to hit. You also describe the fact that Babe Ruth had a neurodegenerative eye condition that, you know, made him legally blind in his left eye. Yeah, <laughs> he did. Yeah. So there is some controversy there about whether or not uh, he played with that uh, with that condition. He was certainly it was certainly detected toward the end of his life. And it was determined that, yes, he was legally blind in, in I think it was his left eye. Um, we don't know for sure whether or not he played um, while while being legally blind. But as I said earlier, the, if he did, it wouldn't have been that surprising because there are 
Tommy Pham is is a great example of of a baseball player who's doing quite well um, despite a uh, despite a uh, an eye condition that um, has been fairly debilitating to him and, and causing very blurry vision and, and other issues uh, throughout his career. Um, and so, and there was a study that I that I did write about, uh, I think involving cricket batsmen a few years ago, where they were wearing uh, goggles that um, that uh, disrupted their vision, and they they still managed to hit the ball uh, fairly well despite having vision at a at a um at a legally blind level in, in one or, or, or both eyes I, I can't really remember so if you have if you put in enough time to establish those um predictive mechanisms um and uh and and your your brain otherwise is, is pretty sharp um you should be able to make up for whatever visual uh, impairments you might have in order to hit the baseball. I'm not saying it it can happen for everybody, and certainly most baseball players have do have excellent vision. Um, but uh, it, it there are there are cases where it's not it's not necessary. So let's talk a little bit about uh, what is necessary and how we know that. And and I'm I'm thinking specifically uh, about the DeServo uh, work. So um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about um, the two neuroscientists that feature, uh, you know, prominently in your book, uh, Jason and Jordan, uh, and and how they measure what's happening in the brain, uh, in particular in baseball hitting. Yeah. So these were two neuroscientists that uh, when I caught up with them starting around 2014, they were um, at uh, Columbia University. And uh, they were interested in um, in in, re- in applying their research to professional baseball, and so they're kind of two tracks that they follow. They were doing research uh, within the university, and, and and therefore they had access to some some uh, to the laboratories, and were able to use fMRI uh, as well as EEG. And in fact, they used um, fMRI and EEG together. And uh, and and I can explain in a, in a second um, what exactly those two techniques uh, mean. Um, but then they've also, as I followed them over the uh, few years, they graduated from Columbia and spun off their own startup company in which they're applying uh, EEG um, and bringing that out to the basically, basically to the locker rooms and the clubhouses of Major League Baseball teams and, and using EEG to assess and evaluate uh, professional baseball hitters. And so they're working in consultation with, with Major League teams and they're still doing that today. And so EEG uh, is... Um, is a, it's kind of like a head it's a kind of a like a headgear that you can wear uh, with, with electrodes and it um, it measures neural activations and it's used for um, for reading brain waves but it's also good for quantifying um, when activations occur in the brain and and uh, in in whatever areas that you're looking at and so or whatever tasks you're you're putting these uh, these uh, subjects uh, under. And so for baseball, it really is a very effective tool because it works on a very short time scale. So you can measure really neural activations down to the thousandth of a second. And of course, for baseball, as we talked about, those pitches come in very very quickly. And so being able to say, okay, you know, there is neural activation at this exact time frame, um, you can then uh, specify when a hitter was deciding to swing or not swing at a pitch, and that's that's how they've um, that's how they've uh, helped the um, the professional baseball teams and and continue to do so going forward. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. So it seems like, you know, the, what you describe is that, is that they, it's almost a new way of scouting. It's like neuro scouting. It's like you can see um, why a particular hitter is going to have trouble if they don't have the right kind of timing in terms of their brain activity when they're watching a pitch happen. Exactly. Exactly. And and so what they found what that was really interesting was that even players, even teammates who obviously were on the same team, had reached the same level and, and uh, were effectively, you know, as good as one another in terms of their out, their stats or their their physical attributes, even teammates were showing that they were deciding on certain pitches at a, at different times. And and so you could you by by develop by gathering enough data and gathering enough information, which is what they did and, and continue to do, you know, they could say that a 300 hitter is translating to someone who is responding or deciding on pitches at 335 milliseconds. And whereas a 240 hitter is deciding on pitches at 380 milliseconds and, and so on. And, um, and so that information, yeah, it's, is very, uh, useful for, for teams for scouting and, and, a, and screening for uh, prospects and, and potential players going forward. Uh, you, you know, because what was most interesting, I think, uh, about what they're able to do is that we always had an idea when a hitter decided to swing at a pitch because he swings, right? We could see the movement. <laughs> you know, the, there's a, there is a motor output there. But with the EEG, you could see the when a hitter decides to swing, or you could also see when a hitter decides not to swing, when there's no motor output, and yet there's still neuron activation. It's still an, an active decision that's transpiring to inhibit you know, the, the swing. And so, in fact, being a good hitter has probably more to do with not swinging at bad pitches as it does to, as, as it does have to do with with swinging at at good pitches and so um being able to to tell teams um based on the readouts of of neuron activations you know who's deciding uh uh early enough and uh, correctly enough on their pitches uh that they're seeing is is definitely a valuable piece of information for scouting and so the logical next step now would be to use EEG as a kind of biofeedback tool uh, to improve this this you know ability. So like uh, you know a lot of a lot of people use uh, EEG in other domains because you can sort of watch uh, the the signal as it's happening, and then you can by you know thinking about you know in a different way or meditating or, or whatever you can actually alter that signal and, and watch that happen. Um, but biofeedback EEG has not been particularly successful in sports. Um, so why not? Well, I think you have to have active and engaged participants first. <laughs> I mean, you know, I think people who are who are interested in in using biofeedback and and uh, and, and neurofeedback are probably you know those who have an understanding of what it could give them and, and, and want to be, want to get, have this, uh, and, and are, are interested and eager to do this sort of thing. Whereas professional athletes are kind of like, will this help me become a better player? I don't know. I don't know what's going on here. I don't want to sit here in front of a laptop screen, tapping my finger. I don't, I'd rather be out hitting. I'd rather be out feeling, you know, so I, I'm generalizing a little bit, but I think, I think there's probably just an overall eagerness component. And that's been, that's been a, 
a roadblock to DeServo's success. And it's one that a lot of sports science companies face is that getting buy-in from the teams and from the players is a big, is a big deal because these, these teams realize that players' time is valuable. And if they are, um, if they're, if they're taking 45 minutes once a week or, or whatever it is for an EEG assessment, that's 45 minutes that they could be otherwise, you know, putting toward batting practice or, you know, yoga or stretching or strength training or whatever it is. And they have to be really convinced that that 45 minutes is going to help them, um, or help their team. And so that's been something that the servo has had to, had to deal with and, and so on. But I think, you know, from the feedback perspective um you know what what the servo has uh effectively and what made them interesting to me is that they position themselves not so much as a performance training module or company um they they pitch themselves as really just a data company they were going to provide teams with this information this neural data that teams never had access to before. And they were going to say, you know, use, you can use this now however you like. And so, you know, it could be used for scouting or an assessing or because they could break down certain in, in certain ways and say a hitter is deciding well, he's, he's really doing well deciding on his fastballs, but his sliders and curveballs, he's not doing so well. He's not doing as well as those teammates. A team could then say, oh, well, we didn't know that. And we didn't know that just by looking at his swing. Let's give him more curveballs and sliders in batting practice and see if that helps. And so um, that's that's kind of the the feedback approach that DeServo was taken. And I think um, teams are, you know, they're still trying to figure out how effective that is, but it's still, it, it's still very early. And, um, and, and so, yeah, it's, it's still very early. Yeah. And, and to be fair, just sort of seeing what, what, how the brain is activated doesn't mean that you can activate the brain in that particular way, you know, with those same, with all the same conditions. I think that's, you know, one of the big uh, sort of misnomers about neuroimaging um, is that, and there, and there are a lot of companies that are trying to put together these like really you know, mobile headsets that, you know, or, or even uh, a transcranial magnetic stimulation or direct stimulation, you know, where people are saying, hey, you know, let's let's stimulate the brain and, and that'll enhance learning. And, and, and I think that, you know, it, it comes from a kind of very crude understanding uh, of, of how the brain learns and that it's, it's much more specific than that. Just activating the area that is active when an expert is doing a task does not make you an expert. I totally agree. Totally agree. And I'm familiar with some of these companies that, that, um, are, are trying to do that. And yeah, it's, it is, it, it's easy and it's intuitively, some of it makes sense. And I can see where a sports team would find that intriguing, but yeah, there, there, it is, um, it is very it's much more complicated and much more nuanced than that and i think that's why really that's why i i thought deservo their approach was the most valid and and interesting as I, they were not trying to say that we could pr- promise any performance benefits or we can say that you know we can tell you whether or not you've got a diamond in the rough here with this player we'll just give you this information you know teams of all sports franchises have always been interested in trying to know what's going on in the in the brains of of their athletes right i mean this has been this is why sports psychologists have been around and why you know uh why there's there's all sorts of mindfulness trainings it's always been this final frontier for these teams but the issue was access they just didn't have the access and now with with the eg and with the way that this company is presenting this 
uh, its its capabilities, it is starting to get that access. It's it's not perfect. Um, EEG uh, is 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 um, it's portable in the sense that you can carry it around and you can bring it into a locker room or a clubhouse or wherever, but this person can't really be moving while wearing it. So that's, that's an issue (laughs) when you're trying to, you know, it'd be ideal if you could wear the EEG in the batting cage and get all the information right there. Um, But that's, they can't do that yet. And so they're using laptop simulation and, and, um, and so it's kind of a, you know, they're trying to approximate what it's like to to actually be in the batter's boxes as best they can, but it's, you know, it's not, it's not perfect, but I think as the technology, as technology improves and, and I think as teams and franchises become um, more comfortable and more familiar with what the technology could provide, um, I see no reason why neuroscience isn't going to be much, much more prevalent in, in, in throughout sports. I mean, look, you know, athletes wear magnets and eat buckets of chicken and don't wash their underwear. And there's no evidence that that's helpful either. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, it's true. Athletes do a lot of strange things just by no evidence. And, and you know, listen, I mean, here's what I heard from a lot of sports teams. When, I mean, kind of uh, on that on that idea of, is that if the player feels like it's working. And they feel better about themselves and, you know, and, and they're, you know, they're, they're feeling good about the superstition and it helps them and mentally as they head out to the next game or whatever, then it's probably going to, then it works, then it's fine. I mean, I think the placebo effect, the, probably the reason why a lot of these companies do so well in, in sports, even though they don't really have that much that's valid to offer is that the placebo effect is, is, uh, it works in sports because, you know, if, if it, if it, uh, you know, if, if it helps the guy, uh, if, some some way or somehow hit more home runs or or uh, pitch better then uh, then really what's what's the harm for I know obviously it, it might wear off but for the time to- for the time being the team can ride that so <laughs> yeah totally so what are you most excited about uh first I should remind our listeners sorry that uh Zach's book the performance cortex how neuroscience is redefining athletic genius is available at booksellers everywhere and I just want to end by asking you, like, what do you think is most exciting in terms of the application of neuroscience uh, for sports in the future? Wow. I mean, you know, I think it, it, it definitely is, is exciting to me from a scouting and, and screening potential there. I mean, we have the NBA draft coming up in a couple of days um, when, we're, when we're taping this. And it, it just drives me crazy sometimes hearing these scouts and and the analysts talk about some of these players and who's going to get drafted high and who you know these these athletes that might be rising up the boards and and so on because of their workouts or because of how much they bench press or how high they jumped on a particular day or how the biggest phrase is wingspan you hear that all the time how big their wingspan is it's you know how long their arms are and 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 you know the idea that teams are still relying on these metrics to make such important decisions for their franchises is just mind-boggling to me and I get it you know you can these are the things that can be quantified and 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 so it's easy to take out a tape measure and look at a, a bunch of wings you know tape the wingspan and or t- uh, measure his a guy how fast he runs in a 40 yard dash um, and that's easy and that's easy and it's simple it's simple uh, quantification there but actually translating those st- those statistics into anything that is applicable, you know, when he gets on the court 
is much more difficult. And it's not going to be really, I guess, until a team figures out how to measure uh, or at least um, understand that cognitive component, what's going on in the brain, um, you know, that that uh, separates these these great uh, performers. And so, you know, I think I think that is is where um you know, scouting and uh, and screening for for future future players is is it's going to have to go. It's going to have to go in order for these teams to stop making bad decisions about about who they take. Because you know, right now it's very hit or miss about these guys because I think they're so reliant on the physical attributes and they're just not. They don't have a way to assess the cognitive or the mental. And so neuroscience is going to be that way. It is, you know, as I said earlier, it's been a matter of access. They haven't had access. Well, now technology is starting to develop ways to provide that access. They might be rudimentary now and and not and kind of imperfect with EEG, but hopefully down the road that gets better and better and and uh, teams take advantage of it. And hopefully more lucrative jobs for neuroscientists. <laughs> <laughs> I, hey, listen, I mean, I, I, I think that, sure, neuroscientists should be uh, employed by, by sports franchises. They already have the psychologists and the yoga instructors and the massage therapists. And what, you know, what's one more doctor to add to the, add to the bench? <laughs> yeah, I'll wait for the Yankees to call. <laughs> Zach Schoenbrunn, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Thank you so much. It was great. So I was going to ask, and you guys talked about this a fair amount, whether neuroscience is actually in the place quantitatively to actually say much about these athletes now. Yeah, well, it sounds like from what Zach is describing that what what neuroscientists can do at the moment is evaluate, but they can't necessarily improve, change. Yeah. yeah, improve. Exactly. Um, not yet. Anyway. Although, of course, that seems like the next logical step. Um, And there is this kind of push towards making a lot of the neuroscience uh, techniques much more mobile uh, and sort of slick. And I think that even though it's been, you know, we've been, there's been decades since we've been using um, electroencephalograms to measure brain waves, and they're still not at the point where we can just, you know, tack on a cap onto an athlete and not worry about their movement and, you know, still get really, um, good data. But there are ways in which scientists are actually circumventing this problem by finding correlates of brainwave states uh, with things that we can measure. And I think that that's kind of exciting, too. Instead of necessarily just thinking, hey, we need to get um, scalp recordings, maybe there are ways in which we can measure um, other kind of muscular activity that also gives us a hint as to what's happening in the brain. Well, let me take that even a step farther. So Let's say that all of those developments happen. Maybe it takes five years, maybe it takes 10 years, maybe it takes 20 years. Uh, Do you think there is an actual defined limit to how far we can take these athletes within these, you know, narrowly, rigidly regulated sports in the sense like the rules of baseball are still always going to be the pitcher's mound is this far to to uh, the batter's box. So there are some like physical limitations at play. Um, do you think we it's these investments in neuroscience is like a frontier that'll unlock some new potential, or are we just sort of nipping at the edges? 
Um, I think it it actually could unlock new potential because, you know, as we talked about, um, you know, there's that book Endure that we covered, too, on the show, uh, which is all about sort of endurances in, in the in the mind, not necessarily in the muscles, even though it feels like your muscles are the ones that are driving your decision to stop a marathon, for example. Um, in fact, that, you know, under different circumstances, you know, your muscles will be act- behaving the same way and yet your mind can get you through it. Uh, I think here, too, what we're seeing is that if we understand that, you know, the decision, for example, to, you know, how to swing and where to swing, you know, happens in some ways subconsciously, um, then we can find ways to train that up specifically. Uh, And I think that that could lead us away from a lot of the superstitious behaviors in some of these uh, professional sports and towards things that actually are effective. Um, And I think so to me, that's the most exciting part is that, you know, if, if you can spend all the energy that, you know, right now is devoted to behaviors that really aren't having an impact, but, you know, somehow have a placebo effect and, and translate it, that into something that could, I mean, you know, who knows? I mean, are we going to get to a, a, another, you know, right now it feels like in baseball, it's really a pitcher's game. Um, you know, we don't have the big sluggers that are, that are coming out all the time. That might shift, uh, you know, if you can find a way to sort of, train uh, um, batters to, you know, hit more accurately by, you know, focusing on a different aspect of uh, the pitcher or, you know, take, make, make decisions in a different way. Um, but, you know, I also think that there probably are physical limitations, but um, I mean, I'm sure there are physical limitations, but the thing is, is that we just don't know where they are until we really understand how the brain is actually solving these problems. Yeah, this resonates with me because there was um, a set of studies that came out, and I think Wired did a great job of highlighting this in a video, that the human body, as it's sort of constituted, can't really throw much faster than 110 miles an hour because simply the forces in that mechanics of a throw, that overhand throw that is used in Major League Baseball, imparts so much force that it'll start to overcome the strength of your ligaments. Uh, when you start throwing at about 110 miles an hour. So even though we've seen this increase in the median speed that pitchers are pitching with, they're going to hit this limit soon. And the game for pitchers is then going to become disguising their pitches so that these batters that are picking up on signals, uh, conscious or otherwise, uh, have less of them to deal with, or they're at least more random uh, in order to get them out easier. And so in a weird way, baseball is turning into much more of a mental game than yeah. uh, than ever before. Yeah, I mean, I think it's always been to some extent a mental game, but now we're sort of just realizing how uh, amazingly mental it is. And it's not just about sort of, you know, hand-eye coordination. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, um, especially David Noel, Charles Blyle, Clark Lindgren, Michael Galgool, Stefan Meyer Awald, Kyle Raihalla, Joel, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Millar, Herring Chang, and Sean Johnson. You can visit our website at inquiring.show and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also get an ad-free version of the show right there at patreon.com. Find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Gian. And we're your hosts. I'm Andre Viscontis, and you can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week.
Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.